A stylish hustler determined to leave the streets behind dreams of starting a legal business in the clothing industry. After overcoming many setbacks, he uses his dedication, education, and perseverance to take the leap. The man, Daniel R. Day. The book, Dapper Dan, Made in Harlem. And you're listening to Lit Society. Let's get lit! Overload in a records I make explode in every zip code. Definitely death to five fingers of death. Got the butcher, call off the chef, and I'm the waiter. Cause I serve imitators who try to duplicate like an emulator. Trying to get paid, copying a name brand. If I was Gucci, then you would be Dr. Dance. Now here the diaper. Hi, readers. This is Alexis, and this is Kari. You're listening to Lit Society, a podcast about books mm-hmm. and drama okay Show you mm-hmm. all right so Kari, what's been going on with you this week girl i've been a vibe all week long i feel like i stepped into the late 70s 80s i've been wearing furs it's hot outside leathers <laughs> yes. i've Bring been the asking fur people in the 90 you... degree weather right <laughs> yes. i've been extra aggressive thing. i've dug into some old hustles none of them worked out all of them legal which is probably why they didn't work out, but it was fun. <laughs> I have fun. Um, yeah, girl, I've been just, I don't know, feeling good. You know what it is? I feel very connected to my father this week and to okay. a life that he introduced me to um, through some Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five records and just some old stuff from that generation. And oh, music was just a vibe back then. But let me shut up. How you been? No, no, please continue, <laughs> sis. Get into yeah, that's it. it. I just been on like a little vibe. It's been fun, you know, time traveling. This probably okay. makes no sense to the readers, but it will stick around. We're gonna have some fun. <laughs> stick around, okay? <laughs> so stick what around. you been up to? What you been doing? Um nothing as usual. I love although it. I, I did see you this week, so that was a bonus. You actually went on a picnic with me. <laughs> and can I tell you how blessed and highly favored I feel? As my cousins like to say. <laughs> I said, Alexis is going somewhere with me. Well, this is like the most active week I've had since the quarantine. I went to the <laughs> library and then the next day I hung out with you. So oh, man, I was doing was some fun. things. You know, I love those outside breaks for lunch, you know, especially when you're working from home. That's a necessity. I'm going to start doing that on a regular. I agree. I think I want to start doing that, too. Every once in a while, I'll go for a walk uh, on my lunch break. But I'm going to do that more often. We need the vitamin D. Mm-hmm. For real. So, yeah, I love I it. I need to be soaking up the sun. Yeah. Okay, can you get into it? <laughs> I can. I dig. All right. I've been digging all stuff right. all weekend. You dig? Oh, it's been nice. I'm probably not even using the language right, but it, I just feel cool. I feel cool. <laughs> it was a kind of cool. It was a cool week. Let's say that. It was. <laughs> reading this it was. book. <laughs> yeah, it was. Okay. Well, let's move it along here. It's time for Society Says, Woo-woo! where we share your comments with the rest of our lit society. Kari, what comments do you have for us today? Okay, I'm going to go to my favorite place. You already know what that is, Apple Podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and this is our latest comment. It is brought to us by a reader by the name of Miss Floyd 99. Uh, It says, great insight and humor. I just listened to part one of your discussion on Anna Karenina and loved it. 
Readers, if y'all don't know, we covered the thickest book ever. Um, Alexis made me read Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. And actually, it changed my life. It's pretty awesome. So the review goes on to say, your analysis is spot on and so entertaining at the same time. Please consider discussion on Nabokov. I'd love to hear your thoughts on Lolita and Pale Fire. Well, you know what, uh, Miss Floyd? I can answer that right now. We ain't Uh-oh. never, ever, ever, <laughs> ever going to read Lolita. I ain't trying to get nightmares. Now, Pale Fire, I don't know much about, so I will look into that, and I thank you for the recommendation. You guys continue sending your recs our way, and Miss Floyd, thank you so much for taking the time to write a five-star review for us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. You, you support our show, and you do that. So we ain't never going to read Lolita. If you got another recommendation, you know, you let us know, girl. Okay. We take that into consideration when we make our schedule. We need those recs. So thank you. What about you, Alexis? What you got? You got some uh, lit feedback from the readers? I do. I actually (laughs) jumped over to uh, Apple Podcasts. Oh, you in my territory. Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And this one is from So Period Many Period Libros. And it's about. Pride and Prejudice. And they said, I stumbled upon this amazing podcast. And being that I'm not really a fan of the medium, it's saying something. (laughs) When I saw that there was a past episode of my all time ultimate favorite book, I was a little hesitant to listen. (laughs) Even considered skipping because I can get pretty defensive and protective of PP. My sister ended up listening first. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My sister ended up listening first, haha, and told me I had to listen. Thanks, sis. I'm, I'm glad <laughs> I did, and I'm so happy you ladies loved it. If you plan to read any more Austin based on your comments, I would suggest skipping Mansfield Park. And then she makes some other suggestions like cool. persuasion. Love, oh, so, you yeah. know, I heard a lot about persuasion. She's not the first person to recommend that one to me. I mean, we went into Austin blind. What's her we first did. name? Jane. Jane. Mm-hmm. We yeah. sure did. <clears throat> the last two readers on earth. I didn't know any Jane Austen books, really. So <laughs> we knew the PBS special, though. Hey, Colin. <laughs> yes. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. <laughs> well, anyway, thank you for sharing your comments with us. We really appreciate them. Yeah, thank and you. remember, readers, to have your comments shared, message us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or We especially love this one. Leave us a review on the Apple podcast. Mm -hmm. Moving right along. (laughs) Each week, we select a theme to discuss inspired by the book we're reading. Mm -hmm. The theme chosen for this week is how to turn your hobby, your side hustle into a business. Oh, Kari. I'm ready. I know you about that side hustle life. Oh, I love side hustles. And I, I, you've been pretty successful at your side hustles, haven't you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with this. What is a side hustle? Mm. I, I took Wikipedia's definition, okay? So they Wikipedia, <laughs> they do know. They t- <laughs> this is what they told us, okay? okay. Wikipedia describes it as a side job informally referred to as a side hustle or a side gig. It's an additional job that a person takes in addition to their primary job in order to supplement their income. It can be done out of necessity or simply out of a desire to earn more money. Now, I've done that before, but they were like side, they would like real side jobs. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I don't feel like that's a side hustle. If you like have a full time job and then have to take on a waitressing job, maybe. And I've done that. <clears throat> a lot of people um, in this country have to do that. Mm-hmm, I don't mm-hmm. feel like that's your side hustle because you're not hustling. You're working. Um, a hustle for me feels more grassroots, something that you create. Mm, that's interesting you say that, but I'm going to say that side job that you got to you got to work to if it's to take care of your family or you're trying to pay something off. I will say that's a hustle as as well. Uh, you know, that's my yeah, thought. you're right. You're right. Actually, so, yeah, I'm sorry. You're right. So what Wikipedia said is, is that millennials are the most likely to have a side job, side hustle, side gig, and usually to have, um, and they usually have it to have a safety net leading to them being considered the side hustle generation. Mm-hmm. However, they say it's a means to, they use it as a means to pay off student loans and as a way to leverage their uh, creativity which would normally not be as easy working in your typical workplace job. Yeah. So that's a side hustle. So for me, what I've seen is that your side hustle typically originates from like a hobby that you've Mm -hmm. had or, you know, something like maybe you make cakes and you really enjoy making cakes, but every once in a while, somebody asks you to make a cake and you'll charge them 25 bucks and you, you know, you get paid for them cakes, but you turn, you want to turn that into a business. So maybe you want a storefront or something where you can sell your cakes out of. So that means turning your hobby into a business. Yeah. That's what we're going to talk about. Okay, Hobbies cool. are done for enjoyment. I've read that they're not professionally done or they're not paid but i i know hobbies that are paid so i can't go by i've always been of the belief that you should never have a hobby that doesn't make you money any hobby that doesn't make you money is a waste of time (laughs) (laughs) and that might not be true but i have always felt that way if it don't make money it don't make sense but but then i think about family hobbies that make you money (laughs) (laughs) just I don't understand the in between wait but hobbies are supposed to be you know something you enjoy that's relaxing you should enjoy making money I agree (laughs) (laughs) okay all right then so how do we get okay I'm sorry okay let me shut up so how do we get our hobby to go into a business and even bigger our side hustle into a business well I'm telling you it is all kind of information out there so I started with legal zoom because they gave you 10 tips on how to turn your hobby and we can also insert side hustle into a business so 10 tips the first one know your goal Hmm. Do you want a full time business so you can quit your day job or are you just looking to cover expenses? Because the more um, you depend on that income that the side hustle brings in, the harder you need to work at it. Right. Mm -hmm. Number two, brainstorm all the ways you could make money from your hobby. So if you're a quilter, you can sell your quilts. But can you also teach a class? Open a quilting shop. Mm -hmm. design and sell quilting patterns. So think of all the aspects of the, um, the uh, hobby or side hustle that you have. If you, if you have a, you like baking cakes, can you teach um, cake baking tips? So take that one skill and find numerous sources of 
income from that one thing. Don't allow one thing to bring just one source of income there to think outside of the box and find other ways to make money off that one thing. Right. Do not limit yourself. Do a complete brainstorm and have somebody help you out with that if you need to. Number three, be sure you'll still enjoy your hobby if you're doing it for money. Ah. (laughs) You're like, that don't matter. It don't, but I hear you. Yeah, because... You may lose the joy, lose the passion, and Grow up. you know then what? <laughs> you, <laughs> you still do it. It's something you can do. Be happy you have a skill that you're good at, and that makes money. I mean, I don't know. Go ahead. Yeah, that is your enjoyment thing. is sec third dairy. Is third dairy a word? Because it ain't even secondary. <laughs> no, no, it's it's not. It's made up. I'm sure of it. <laughs> Listen, making money from your hobby means that you got demanding customers, you're meeting deadlines, yes. and you got to be prepared to get involved with that. You, you'll you have to manage the marketing, the financing. You're juggling all the balls. So yeah. you, you need to be prepared to go in this. You could lose your joy in what it is that you love and kind of walk away. So you need to have that thinking going forward that, These things are all involved. Yeah. Number four, get really good at what you do before you quit your job. (laughs) They say to make money from your hobby, you've got to be good at it. If your skills aren't yet up to par, make a plan to improve them and put off your business ideal until you're ready. And you're never going to be the master at whatever it is you do. There is always going to be something, someone better. Yep. Learn from that person and try to top them. I mean, it never feel like you are stationary in whatever it is you do. Always look for ways to learn and improve. Right, right. Yeah. Um, number five, write a business plan. When you write a business plan, it says evaluate the market of your um hobby business and prove to yourselves that it is a viable business. So you need to know what you're getting into by examining the uh, field of interest before you take that dive. And don't be afraid to ask an advisor what you should do. If you ever um, get to the point where you want to look for investors, you need that plan and it has to be in your head and your heart because they're going to want to see that you're passionate and smart about whatever you're doing. Mm hmm. Number six, adopt a business mindset. A hobby is something you do at your leisure. When you make it a business, you got to show up. So even Mm -hmm. when you don't feel good, you got to make this second job like your priority. Number seven, learn about marketing. You could be the best at what you do. You could be just under the best. You could just be good at what you do. But that does not bring the business. You have to know how to market your small business. And and to do that, you should observe how other people's and other people in the business uh, market their business and promote themselves. So you're encouraged to set up a website for your new business and and get comfortable with social media. Start making connections online and in your um, small business community or the community that your hobby is in. Can I add something? Absolutely. All the time. (laughs) So my nine to five is a a marketer. I am a copywriter and I do uh, marketing assistant work for the um, director of marketing at our company. The goal of marketing is for you to find your tribe. You want to find the people that will promote for you, that will form an emotional connection to whatever it is you do and produce. 
um, for our podcast, even we sat down and created avatars or right. um, personalities that we expected would listen to this show. Any business needs to know on paper the specific people that they are talking to. Give them names. Uh, what's their educational background? What's their income? What are they interested in? And you can have four or five personalities that you've created. Everything you do, all the money and effort you put into marketing should be for one of those five in this example. So, you know, they're made up people. They're imaginary friends that buy your stuff that you think buy your stuff. Yeah. You if you find later that those aren't really your customers, recreate those personalities to fit whoever your key market has become. Absolutely. I love yeah. that tip. Thank you. Number eight, create a brand and stick to it. Your brand is your business identity and what you'll be known for. And a strong brand helps your loyal customers recognize you. So decide on a business name, a logo, a font, a color scheme that reflects your business's personality and use them consistently on your website, on your social media and other marketing, you know, like the arches or excuse me, like the lit society for lit society okay. and pink. Okay. <laughs> Forget McDonald's. I mean, we got a whole logo out there. Y'all did just speak. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Number nine. Number nine. Get your first customer. Even if it's you gonna have be to your mama. <laughs> That's perfectly fine. <laughs> your first customer, you may have to work it for free. It may be what you need to do. Um, your first customer gives you confidence in your business idea and it'll make it psychologically easier to market yourself. You could give them the service for free and ask them to write a, a nice review or a testimony that will help. So those first customers may not be your friends and family. Um, take a photographer, for example. If I invite a photographer to my party in the past, I would expect them to just take a few photos. It's not a big deal. Just take pictures. It is a big deal because not only are you asking them to work for free, but I may not be the key demographic that they're targeting, which means the free work they do for me won't produce any additional paid work for them. So when you do do things for free, um, try to choose amongst the people that you think will be your key audience or the key uh, buyers for your product. So, you know, your family and friends are going to ex maybe expect some things for free. No, they should pay for it. I know when our friends they do, do things, they, they <laughs> you know, we want to support them. So they yeah. should want to pay for your services mm -hmm. you know? as a support to your business. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And number 10, put your finances in order. You, you need to report your business income and expenses on your tax return and pay the quarterly estimated taxes. Quarterly um, estimated taxes. Mm -hmm. That's huge. You need to collect sales tax. Um, <sighs> the easiest way to keep your business finances straight, of course, is to set up a bank account for your business and keep them separate from your personal finances. Uh, it would be important to meet with an accountant to help you talk through that and maybe even invest. Well, even in, it would be important to invest in some accounting software. If you're in the, you know, ground stages and you're not prepared to fully pay a um, accountant, it would be helpful to do that. So we've done both. We've had a meeting with an accountant, but from the very beginning, we opened a separate account for this show. You, it is never too early to separate your money because Uncle Sam is going to be very specific about what they expect from you. And they want to see all the money coming in and all the money going out. If you have $10 for a business, you can open an account and put that $10 in there. Absolutely. <laughs> that's perfectly fine. Absolutely. You know? Maybe you can't afford an accountant right away, but look into free online software, like Alexa said. 
Yeah. So that was legal zoom, but I also looked at entrepreneur.com. They also had some tips for people, not necessarily going to jump into all of them, but I mean, it was just four, but there was a couple of them that stood out to me. Um, and I think it was more a reminder that, um, leaving as you think about moving your your um, side hustle into a business, it can be really scary because you have benefits and security with a full-time job. Um, And sometimes it may be unrealistic to leave your full-time job. Maybe it's just not the right time, but it's also dangerous to keep waiting till the time feels right. And I think you mentioned that early on, Kari. Did you say that? I don't know. I say so much. I'm always talking. <laughs> but, but it can be. So, you know, judge it right. It's a, it is a leap. And if you're confident in your product, whatever that may be, take the jump. And then another one that uh, I especially liked was work hard and be humble. You got to be prepared to put in lots of hours with minimal return. Your time isn't money yet. It's truly just the groundwork. So you're being an entrepreneur requires wearing a lot of different hats. You're going to be the customer service person, the salesperson. You're going to be everything. So you got to be prepared to take those things in consideration. So again, that was entrepreneur.com. They have four tips and then they have a second um article that talks about six tips to turn your side hustle into a business. So there's plenty of information out there. If you want to do it, take the dive, but do your research first. And that first article was from LegalZoom. So Kari, do you have anything else to add? Your information has been really insightful. Okay. Um, So I would say that um, when you're working on your passion, so time isn't money, right? Not literally, but truthfully, your time is more valuable than currency. So when you're working Mm -hmm. on your passion, it can be easy to devote an unbalanced amount of time to that thing. I would say for me, um, never allow who you are spiritually and your family connections to fall by. Always put those in priority. When you prioritize each day by like faith, family, and then whatever your work or passion is, then you'll always be successful. So it can be easy to just pour. I mean, if I could, I would really work like 24 hours on some passions. I, I would never sleep. Sleeping wow. feel, can feel like a waste of time, <laughs> especially when you're like lying in bed and you're thinking of different things and you want to jot it down. I am not there prior- in life. <laughs> let me assure you. <laughs> <laughs> you got to prioritize your who you are spiritually, your family and also your health. Uh, so that would be my only thing. And that's a constant battle to make sure your time is not being um, you're not being unbalanced with the amount of time. I should apply it to me. I'm not being unbalanced with the amount of time I spend um, toward hobbies or side hustles. So, yeah. Well, thank I you. I love those tips, though. Yeah, they were really great tips. Um, I could just keep digging myself into a hole, reading all the information that's out there. It's really helpful. Um, it's it's really helpful. So, oh, one more thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe don't talk to a lot of people about your passion if you want to make it a business, because people can, um, from a good place, discourage you from being where you need to be from a good place. They don't want to see you fail. But failing is all part of no success success story is missing a failure story. So failing Mm -hmm. is cool. That's all part of the process. Fail up. Learn from every failure and improve and rework your idea. But. Uh, maybe keep it to yourself and to your advisors, like people's who whose opinion on this matter you trust. Yeah, that's it. 
do not be afraid to fail. I love that. Mm-hmm. Cause you're right. gonna fail. <laughs> it's just a part of the process. It's right? just a part of it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Brush it off and keep it moving. Let's take a quick break before we get into the context and author intro. Love it. Okay. It was falling out the sky like if Dougie Fresh was performing and we already had too much and so we was brushing it off us and pictures in front of backdrops till like four in the morning and all of this dapper damn for all of your dapper adornment or it's falling on the badge and the murder of Charlie. Can you introduce us to our author? I would love to. Thank you. Daniel Day, better known as Dapper Dan, is a Harlem-based streetwear pioneer who operated an eponymous boutique in the 1980s. I always have trouble with that word. Mm -hmm. Basically, the boutique was named after him and it catered to um, street celebrities, people who were, yeah, hood celebrities. So the drug dealers, the gangsters, athletes, musicians, um, and he was known for his defiant appropriation of European heritage brand logos. His designs have been featured in exhibitions at the Museum of Modern Art, the Smithsonian Institution, the Museum at FIT, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, um, the Museum of the City of New York, you know, London's Design Muse- Museum. MTV. <laughs> MTV. Yo, raps. <laughs> And this um, biography I'm getting from the back of his book is very um, concise. But can I just say that the. Um, so listen, I can't remember a time when I did not know the name Dapper Dan. When I was wow. little, I thought he was a pimp. Like, that's a famous <laughs> pimp. Oh, I got wow. him confused with someone who I will not mention. And that was enough for me. I didn't feel like I needed to know more about him. Um, the, the heyday for him was like my parents' generation. So I didn't really um, I wasn't educated on who he was and his story. But then his name came up in my world again. And it was for a familiar topic. A big name designer was ironically counterfeiting the counterfeiter. So a big name, (laughs) a big name had recreated one of his designs and was parading it down the runway. After a week of getting heavy criticism on social media, that brand name. Black Twitter to the rescue. Readers, can we just sit and talk for a second? Listen, <laughs> y'all, Gucci had recreated a, a jacket that Dapper Dan had created back, back in the day. And Black Twitter was like, oh, no. And can I tell you, there has never been an investigator more um, skillful since Magnum P.I. Black Twitter <laughs> will find out everything about you. So instantly they pulled up the exact photo of the jacket Dapper Dan made. And you know what Gucci did? They said, ah, ah, ah. We was paying homage to Dapper Dan, y'all. <laughs> we can't contact him. Does anyone have his number? I'm right. not even kidding. Right, <laughs> Gucci, right. Gucci was like, this was all part of the plan. <laughs> so, um, listen, they eventually did get in contact with Mr. Day, of course. And this is where things really get cool. They started, they um, pitched to him a unique idea. I've never seen this before, where they allow him to have his own clothier in Harlem near his original, it might even be his original spot, I think, where they revamped it. And it's like a partnership. So now he has a Gucci boutique in Harlem, as he did back in the day. And he's still making fly clothes. But now it's all been um, like approved by Gucci. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really cool. So that's Dapper Dan. Well, thank you for that, Kari. Yes, we are going to get into great detail about Dapper Dan in a few <laughs> minutes. 
Let's start off with a brief synopsis about the book with no spoilers. How about that? No spoilers. Okay. A streetwise hustler grows up during America's fight against drugs, poverty, and civility. He takes the lessons he's learned from the street and marries them to the philosophies and ideologies he picks up as an avid reader. With his knowledge and after two trips to Africa, which inspired his path, he begins working on the biggest hustle of his life. He's all in. But will his underground lifestyle take him out for good? I wrote that. Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. That's (laughs) fire. Thank you, guys. So, Alexis, what were your first thoughts of uh, Made in Harlem, a memoir by Dapper Dan? So I was excited to read um, about Dapper Dan. I'd heard of him um, more recent years with the Gucci episode, but I also remember. Yeah. Fiasco <laughs> clarification, but I also remember the um, hip hop stars of the old day donning his clothes, uh, his wear. So that was always pretty cool to me. So I was excited to uh, get started into this book. And plus, that book cover, fire. Yeah, it's really clean. He looks Ooh. great. He looks great. I can't stop looking at it. Everything mm-hmm. looks right on that mm-hmm. cover. Makes you want to get dressed, which mm-hmm. is motivation we need, honestly, during COVID 2020. I believe because I sure will wear some sweatpants all day long. <laughs> all week long. Oh, yeah. right, right. All week. But I only take it one day at a time. <laughs> <laughs> OK, Kari. So what did you think about um, what were your first impressions of the book? My knowledge of Dapper Dan was so superficial. I was excited to get into the meat and potatoes of who he who he really is. There's a like a mini movie created, I think, by either Gucci or Nike. I'm sorry, I can't remember the brand, but I'd watched it on YouTube and it gives like an overview of his story in his own words. And it's just cool. It's really short, too. Okay. Um, so I was excited to get the meat and potatoes of his story and more details again from his own words. So I was excited to to get into this book. Um, and I can't tell you if it disappointed me because we saving that for the end. OK, but you know what? <laughs> you got to share that YouTube video. Is that what it okay. was? YouTube? Yeah. Share that when you get a chance. I'd love and to I, see maybe that. I'll put it in the show notes to readers. So you should be able to see through our show notes where that video is. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Thanks. All right. Mm-hmm. So now that we got the author, uh, a little author detail out of the way and, uh, you know, brief synopsis. Are we ready to take that deep dive? Too ready. Okay. Well, this deep dive will have plenty of spoilers. Okay. Roll Spoiler with it, Kari. All right. Here we go. Part one, back in the back. So Dapper Dan opens his first boutique at the age of 37. His first boutique. 37. Okay? He had a wife, a whole city full of kids. <laughs> <laughs> And he wasn't into wasting no money because this was a man that took care of his woman and his children. So he lived at the boutique as often as he could. He would sleep in the back and not even a full night's sleep. He would just catch naps here and there. This is his first quote unquote legit hustle. He spent his life making money any way he can from selling drugs to shooting dice with gangsters. When he started making custom clothing, he didn't even know how to sew. But he had a natural talent. He had a motto, just because it looks good in your mind doesn't mean it looks good on your behind. (laughs) I love that motto. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) He knew, though, how to make people look as good as they imagined they would in his clothing. So for years, again, this boutique was open. Book, whatever. This boutique was open for 24-7 all the time. Celebrities and esteemed clientele appreciated the late night hours for privacy and coming in late on a weekend made it feel like a club. He had ordered... 
orders from uh, Grammy award winning singers, renowned athletes. But when the economy got bad and like crack and AIDS filled the streets, it was the drug dealers that kept Dapper Dan and his boutique paid. Dan understands and loves these young men who he sees as doing all they can with what they've got. One day, while Dan was reading a book on philosophy, he's a big reader in the back room of his boutique. A big Puerto Rican hotshot drug dealer walks in. His name is Serge. Serge wants a custom Gucci fit and he's brought enough cash to buy a house. Not actually, but like he bought a lot of cash out of <laughs> He got As a bankroll, okay? I mean, he takes out three stacks, okay? Mm-hmm. As Dapper Dan is helping him, neither of them notice the van waiting across the street with its headlights dim. When Serge leaves the boutique, that van speeds up next to him. Men jump out and things get heated. Now, Dan has to make Dapper Dan has to make a decision. Is he going to listen to the voice in his head telling him to help, you know, go get the heater and help help out Serge? Or will he listen to the louder voice telling him, mind your business? Mind your business. That's the voice he listened to. So he does nothing. That robbery turns into a kidnapping for a long time. Dapper Dan is haunted by what he did or rather what he didn't do in that moment. And this is still what he's thinking when weeks later, a kidnapped van pulls up to take him to. And now we're getting into the book. Get into it. Get into it. The Harlem Renaissance. It's not the gentrified Harlem of today. You've been to Harlem lately? You have. I have. <laughs> yeah, me too. I mean, it's not like a, lately, but I have. Yeah, well, mm-hmm, I was there a second ago and it's really gentrified. That's all. It's just really gentrified. Well, it wasn't like that back in the day. Um, Dapper Dan remembers that Clearly, those old days. He was born two days after his grandmother died, his mother's fourth boy in a row. Before, because she delivered him. Yeah, that, you're right. That makes sense. Okay, so he was born. A few days later, his grandmother died. And he was his mother's, again, fourth boy in a row. Um, it could not have been easy living at that time. Poor. When he was born, everyone marveled at the size of his head. <laughs> that boy had big as the moon, they would say. <laughs> Also, this book is funny. It is. So, so they would say, yeah, that boy had big as the moon, just like Moon. Now, Moon was one of his older brother's nickname because his hair was big. It's like a, the size of a planetarium. So they called Dan, Daniel Little Moon. <laughs> but when his mother took him to file his birth certificate, they misspelled his legal name, Daniel. In fact, all his siblings had misspelling or misspellings or incorrect information on their birth certificate. These were minor human errors, but they pointed to a greater neglect by, quote unquote, the system. No one cared about them because they was poor as dirt. They lived in a five story tenement building. His parents were part of the Great Migration. And you guys, readers, if you don't know about the Great Migration or even if you do, please read Isabel uh, Wilkerson's book. The Warmth of Other Suns. We cover that book in two episodes um, on our show, by the way. Moving on. So his parents were part of that great migration. Um, They surrounded themselves with family and friends, which we know is was typical of the time. Their front door was never locked. It was like small town southern life had transplanted itself into uptown New York. Back in the day, the community was so tight knit that people often lived near families that were from the same small town their family was from in the south. I love that. So this created. Yeah, they felt, you know, safe. There was respect. Um, But then high rise, low income buildings established by the city tore these communities apart and people stopped living next to people they knew. And some stopped looking at their neighbors as people. Um, Doors started being padlocked. 
Anyway, so I think this story um, is pretty, is imitated all throughout America. So you can find a similar story from those immigrants that came through the Great Migration and what happened to them when low-income housing was established, specifically high-rises. So no fridge at the time in the family's house. They had a real ice box. You had to like buy ice to put it in the fridge to keep all the food cold. And when they you ate cereal. what? This is my first time <laughs> truly understanding what an ice box was because I just really? thought it was a freezer. <laughs> no, I feel like my grandmama had an ice box in Arkansas. But anyway, <laughs> when they ate cereal, they would first slap the box on the table a few times to get all the roaches out before pouring it into the bowl. I'm gonna let that sit. Yeah, but they went to a private school thanks to their mom who insisted. And during recess, some moms from the kids at school would come back to the school and throw nickels in the yard for the kids to pick up and buy candy with. And Daniel used to be like, Mama, can you come to the school and come back and um, throw nickels to the yard? <laughs> he didn't understand what it took even for his mom to get him to that school. But still, it broke his heart not to have her ever be the mom to come and throw coins at the kids and it made him so sad that's probably why he's a good hustler even to this day he remembers the real physical pain of hunger and how that constant literal hunger for food came to shape his life he was hungry all the time as a kid and his feet always hurt because of the poor quality of their shoes they were poor but they were surrounded by love and the fun that they had was real fun because it was fun built on love mm, that sounds like fun yeah, I do. Every Sunday morning, the streets became a runway as people showed off their Sunday vests. Hello. Uh, uh, Dan's father had immigrated from the South and um, he was only 10 years old when he got to New York. He was an orphan. He couldn't read, of course, but he was a hard worker and he treated his family like his everything because truthfully, they were everything to him. One day he took Dan on a train ride to a big department store known for suits. His dad fell in love with a suit but couldn't afford it. It was $40, which was a fortune to them at the time. The salesman told his dad, you know, I'll make a deal with you, sign a contract, and you can pay off the suit little by little. Uh, Dapper Dan, well, Dan, we'll call him Daniel at this point. Um, baby Dan, Daniel's dad stared at the contract. He wanted that suit. Dan was only in third grade at the time. He looked down at the contract and saw something about interest. And he recalled what he learned in math class. He let his dad know, I know you want this suit, but you'll be paying it off for the rest of your life. His dad looked at him with pride and said, boy, you can read. You can really read. It hurt Dan in that moment to know he knew anything his father didn't. To know he knew more about more than his father about something. They left the department store without a suit, but his father was full of pride. His boy was literate. His son was living the dream he'd imagined he could read. Dan, at that moment, realized reading can save you a lot of pain in the long term. Any power you have comes from what you can read. He says there's no problem he can't read his way out of. Now, R.C., a relative who sometimes stayed with them, came by one day with a briefcase full of cash. Dan had never seen this much cash in his life. This was no dream deferred. <laughs> he, re <laughs> he was realizing his dream. RC was. And Daniel realized that the real winners weren't the literary types. Right. They were the hustlers. Yeah. He said Part the teachers, mm -hmm. they weren't the ones walking around with suitcases full of money. It was right. the hustlers. Exactly. Part two, the elements. 
Just like the five elements of hip hop, Daniel's generation had an unspoken code of elements that dictated their respect for the hustlers. And I'm going to lay it out for you. Okay. These are the five These are the five elements of that code. Number one, was you getting money? And not just where you getting money, but how were you getting money? If there was risk involved, it means you weren't no pushover. And so you automatically get respect for being in risky games. Number two. Were you good at dancing? <laughs> you know, people used to dance. I don't think my generation dances. It's sad. Right. Dancing is fun. Number three, were you a ladies man? Some hustlers didn't know how to talk to women. They would abuse them. That didn't get you respect. Because if you was really slick, then a good hustler who could talk to women would always have a place to stay, even if he was destitute. <laughs> And that brings us to number four. Could you talk slick? Okay. And then lastly, and this was the one that Daniel cared about the most, were you fly? Fly. Power was fly mm-hmm. and fly was power. So you got to be fly. Um, Daniel's mom now. Daniel's mom arrived to New York, a straight-laced Christian Jamaican Geechee woman with deep brown skin and high cheekbones. She was a stunner. She had dreams and aspirations. She was a scholar, a writer. But many of her dreams, unfortunately, were never realized. Um, And after she married a good hearted man, um, Daniel's dad, more than 10 years her senior and pushed out a few children, those dreams all but died. Daniel later learned that his mom had been married once before. She birthed two children outside of her marriage at that time. And then her husband died unrelated to her birthing children outside the marriage. But anyway. His father, Daniel's father, raised those two children like his own. So it never even occurred to Daniel that those weren't his father's kids. Um, He just knew two of his siblings had different last names Mm -hmm, than him. mm -hmm. Um, His mom found the neighborhood men entertaining. Daniel does not go into too deep of a detail of what that means. But we do know he hated that. Daniel, as a little boy, hated that. You know, his mom liked men and the men liked mom. Who wouldn't? Oh, even saying that made me itch. Don't nobody (laughs) want to hear that. Um, Daniel even suspected that the church pastor was secretly trying to get with his mama. Mm. Yeah. So she was always found. um, She had always found comfort in the bottle. And that was even worse than her love for men. She became an alcoholic. He had to get her from a bar on one occasion, a little boy walking into the bar to retrieve his mom. When they got home, she fell on the stairs, busted her lip. He put her hand on the Bible and told her, promise me you'll never drink again. She muttered something and fell asleep. Mm. Her alcoholism and his feelings about about it drove like a wedge between them. And he stopped respecting, respecting her. And without that respect for his mom, he became reckless. So he didn't want to use violence to separate people from their cash, but he wanted to use his brain to hustle. He became a student of the hustle. There was an art to it, an elegance. His Mr. Miyagi was a kid that called himself killer. He was probably the only one that called him killer. <laughs> yeah, that's what he said. <laughs> the kid's the real kid name was called himself Killer. Didn't yeah, nobody like, hey, else call my him name killer. is Daniel. Oh, hey, what's up? I'm Killer. And <laughs> Daniel was just like, okay, we're gonna let that go. The kid's real name was Kenneth. <laughs> um, but he did kill everyone at dice. Hey, killer did. Killer. Yeah, he took on Daniel and his brother as like his only quote unquote students. He was a teenager and they were still in the third grade, but they probably looked at looked up to him with like respect. And he was like really skilled. Um, he, he just had a good head for math and that made him a great gambler. Through him, they entered like a fraternity of hustlers. <laughs> One of the legends was named Joe in at this fraternity. Third grade. I mean, yeah, they were growing up fast. 
Um, Daniel later realized Joe Jackson, the the legend I'm talking about, couldn't read or write, but he was a genius math wise. He reminds me of someone uh, from Malcolm X's past. We'll read that book too, um, the autobiography of Malcolm X. But anyway, um, he just had a natural mind for math and because he was naturally gifted he worked at it too to make him unbeatable when it came to numbers he knew how to study people too this joe did and beat them before they even started playing the game so he would dress clean looking great so that whoever was playing whoever was rolling dice with him wanted to beat him more than they wanted to win so he was already in their head yeah um they weren't even thinking about the game they was thinking about his shoes he was i want to win these shoes fly, and yeah. that, that was served as a distraction to whoever he was playing with and that is the way that he could get into it and kind of win the game and win the game yep. period when baby Daniel joined this like fraternity, he was borrowing his, uh, st- he was stealing his older brother's clothes <laughs> and he thought that made him look good. But these, these older boys told him, uh-uh. So one time Joe looked at him and just shook his head in disgust. <laughs> and for Daniel, who cared about being fly, he got the point immediately. He was going to go shopping, i.e. shoplifting. <laughs> so one day <laughs> while shopping for a pair of trick dice, he looks over and sees a young black kid around his age. Who where he come from if he was there he was obviously hustling too years and years later that kid would become daniel's best friend but we're gonna leave him here for now we're gonna go back to killer so killer kenneth taught daniel the blueprint that would shape the hustle that would become his life for one never allow your carnal appetites to get in the way of your hustle never allow the opposite sex to ruin your money Um, and that stuck with him. He still, you know, he still believes in that. Daniel went to the library like Alexis um, and read up on all the books about gambling. Come on. Remember, shout out <laughs> to the library. Okay, Remember, there's not a problem he can't read his way out of. Mm-hmm. He was killing everyone he touched and soon Kenneth got jealous. Kenneth also became an addict. Um, drugs started making their way through the neighborhood and Kenneth and Daniel separated ways. School seemed like a joke to Daniel. What has school ever done for anyone? He thought his mother was an alcoholic. She was the studious one. And his brothers were one by one falling to heroin. Daniel dropped out his sophomore year. That broke my heart because he only had two more years. Only two more years. Yeah. Well, three or whatever, but whatever. Um, so these days, Daniel went by the name Dancing Danny. In the neighborhood, there was a sax player. <laughs> there was a, a, a guy who would play the saxophone on the corner. And that guy's name was Dapper Dan. But when he saw Dancing Danny, who was famous for always looking fly, he told him, yo, my name Tenor Dan now. <laughs> you, you Dapper Dan. Isn't that something? And it stuck. That's crazy. <laughs> Somebody already famous running with that name has decided, That's you know what? <laughs> You yeah, gonna be dapper. It's you. It it's you. you better than me. Yeah, I, I mean, part of me think that never happened, and Dapper Dan just like stole that name. Either way, <laughs> it don't even matter. <laughs> so here we go. Um, part two. You know, I'm gonna stop saying parts because I don't know where I am. Okay, part three. <laughs> part three is getting serious. So his older brothers start selling drugs, and his parents, to their credit, kick those boys out. Um, Daniel missed his brothers. And so he would sometimes sleep in the rooming house where they were renting. Um, One night in the shared room, Daniel got his first glimpse at the dark side of the drug game. One of his brother's friends, Rico, uh, brought a beautiful girl in. And Rico was like a ladies man. So it wasn't surprising that he had a beautiful girl on his arm. They were both high, though. 
They walked into a room alone, and when Rico emerged, he was sweaty and his shirt was unbuttoned. He then walked outside, grabbed two of his friends, and walked back into the room. Daniel heard the girl crying, and the guys walked out laughing like it was all a big joke. They even invited him to join. Daniel was 10 years old at the time, and he said, no, I don't like that, and she crying. What's that about? So that must have been enough to get the guys to stop. They let the girl go and she walked into the street disheveled with a face covered in tears. A moment later, the woman came back with her husband and a police officer. One of the three men involved took the entire rape case and went to prison. They deemed her activity with Rico as consensual and the other guy had left just in time to not get caught. Basically, in front of a 10 year old, they had treated a woman as less than human and Daniel never forgot this. He was always taught to defend women in his family and that his responsibility as a man was to protect, um, protect women. Was, yeah. That was part of his job as a man. That yeah. was part of the reason for his existence. So to see this and to see his brothers hanging around these people, he may not, they may not have been involved, but just to see the company they kept that stuck with him. When there was a woman struck out on the streets, Daniel says, there was usually a man nearby who had gotten her hooked. Whatever he and his brothers did, it had to stay away from his sisters. So he had to be vigilant and strong like his dad taught him, he yeah. thought. And as by the time. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I don't know. Am I jumping ahead? Um, Go ahead. To a part where he protected his sisters and he made a point. He made a point that his sisters weren't involved from it. They they just he really sheltered them. He became the protector of his sisters because his father essentially gave him that responsibility, protect the women in your life, your mother, your sisters. And, and he took that on as a shield and carried it. Like even so seriously, jump. that's not jumping ahead, but jumping ahead to where he opened his boutique and was way, way grown. <laughs> he wouldn't even allow his sisters to come to his store because sometimes people of ill repute would be in there. He didn't want his, his sisters around that. So, you know, by the time he was 12, his brothers weren't allowed to live at home anymore, period. So he was the sister's self-appointed protector. He got the nickname El Dictator for scaring <laughs> all the guys away that came to his house looking for his sisters. And, you know, maybe... This was beneficial. Actually, it absolutely was because mm -hmm. all three of the girls went to college. They broke glass ceilings in the corporate world and found their own um, level of success. Moving on, Dan and his brothers became addicts. Dan and his brothers became addicts. OK, their father came by their room one day and told them about a rehab program. Daniel was the only one that went. He only went for a day. There was a big gangster there who informed him that kicking heroin was going to be the biggest fight of his life. But Daniel was determined when someone told him he couldn't do something or that it was extremely hard. That served as motivation for him, even from this age. One day he sees his friend with like this paperwork and he's like, what you doing? And the friend was like, I'm changing my age. <laughs> <laughs> so he, the friend was changing his age from 17 to 22. Why are you doing that? Daniel says, Listen, I'm gonna give me a job. I thought you <laughs> had to be 18. He changed his age from 17 to he 22. He wanted to look good and grown. Okay. He wanted to work. He wanted to get a legit job. He was sick of the streets. This friend yeah. was. And so he legally changed his age wow. from 17 yes, to 22. The next, this friend's name was Curtis. The next time Daniel saw Curtis, his friend, he had translated his street skills into a high paying job with a cosmetics company. He was doing well and he looked amazing. He looked healthy. And Daniel was like, I want to do that. So he moved to Queens and started working as Curtis's assistant. Curtis brought him around middle class black people. They were lawyers. They were doctors. They were free, clean, successful and professional. And now so is Curtis and Daniel. The company put Daniel in charge of one of the stores in the black neighborhood. Daniel's teenage mind told him to hustle. He decided to embezzle money from the company. That's why I'm shaking my head reading the book. No. 
Yeah, exactly. He decided to embezzle money from the company. He would take that stolen money, buy dope, make more money, return the company's money and make a huge profit, which he could use to buy more dope. And the cycle continues and so on and so forth. Well, that was he the plan. Some, <laughs> well, he grabs some old friends and they start their plan. One weekend, not long after handing off the bundle to Herman and Thurman, I paid them a visit, expecting them to hand me a stack of bills to replenish the money I'd stolen from the company with some left over for myself. We ain't sell nothing, said Thurman, handing me back the bundle. I went back to Queens confused. Something wasn't adding up. Were they just lazy? Was the competition that stiff? The thought crossed my mind that Herman and Thurman might have been doing me dirty somehow, but I couldn't understand it. These were my friends, my brothers. When I finally got confirmation from someone else that they had in fact ripped me off, taking the original bundle, selling it, and using the money for a new bundle, which they handed back to me, pocketing the profits, I couldn't believe it. I had to find a way to replace the $3,000 I'd stolen from these white folks. So I started juggling money at work. I realized that this could end everything, not only for me, but for Curtis too. I saw red. Come on. I said to Curtis, we going over to Herman's house. First, we stopped by Caesar's place. I needed to borrow his gun. He handed it over without hearing another word because the less he knew, the better. I tucked the pistol into my waistband and Curtis and I headed over to Herman and Thurman's house. Before either of the twins could say a word, I pulled out my gun and held it to Herman's head. Don't do that, he begged. Come on, Danny, don't do that. Herman's pleading voice brought me back. I remembered how, if a bully would ever pick on one of us, we'd get the other two to come back and whoop them. We didn't even need to bother with getting my older brothers. The three of us would jump the bully ourselves, together. We had each other's backs. And now, here I was, standing over one of my best friends with a gun to his head. It was the same gun my brother had pulled on me not too long ago when he accused me of messing with his money. We were turning against each other, brothers against brothers, friends against friends. This was it. This was the curse. I lowered the pistol and left. My brief fly life in Queens had been nice while it lasted. I replaced the money, but not before an internal investigation was conducted into what had happened to the missing deposit. I'd lost my job. Curtis nearly lost his job, too, because of me. In the end, they didn't fire him, but they demoted him back to a worse branch of the company in Manhattan. Soon, Curtis was back uptown, hanging out in his old haunts, and he relapsed. And I found myself back on the avenues of Harlem with no better work than selling drugs and no better way of escaping the reality than using drugs. I relapsed, too. Daniel ended up selling and using drugs again. At one time, he and his three brothers all ended up in jail. And I have to say that I remember this um, at one time when you went to see people in jail and it depends on the jail. Maybe you'll be in a room with them or maybe you'll have to speak through like a glass uh, window and they'll have like a telephone for you, some dirty telephone. Yeah. And they pick up a telephone and y'all can both speak to each other. So this is heartbreaking. His dad went to see his sons in jail and there are three windows and he's hopping to each one talking to his boys. Mm, mm, his mm. dad is. Ugh. Yeah. Daniel again decided never again. I'm never doing this. He was let go and got locked up again. Yeah. <laughs> this time the jail was filthy, full of rats, overpopulated. And near him was one of the accused assassins of Malcolm X. Daniel had loved Malcolm because Malcolm loved black people. 
Norman, uh, what's his name? Norman 3X. He, Norman, had the guards teaching the Nation of Islam philosophy to the other prisoners. So he was in there controlling things. He, he had a was. way about him he that could get people to do what he wanted. Um, his resolution and self-discipline inspires Daniel to find his own spiritual path. He didn't want to join the Nation of Islam, but he liked how disciplined they were. The message of power over self intrigued him, especially seeing what drugs were doing to his neighborhood. Daniel was street. He didn't completely disrespect women, but he couldn't be faithful to any woman. We're moving on. <laughs> he found his future wife, June, or she found him in the 80s when he had started his path to enlightenment. They had a baby girl, but it'd be 10 years before they moved in together. Dapper Dan had two kids by two women. He met June. They had a baby. Dapper Dan then had three children. Yeah, three children with three other women. Then June had his a second child with him. Mm-hmm. His youngest child's mother was his dance partner. <laughs> he got enough, you know, all in New York, them his kids. He made each mother agree to raise the child as a vegetarian until they were old enough to buy their own food. And that's I love something. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They all went to private school, which he paid for and grew up in a home. He wanted them to live in a house. And um, expect a good amount of money if he dies. So he took out a life insurance policy for his children um, and I think their mothers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He considers June his life partner. She's the one he shared his thoughts with and who encouraged him to step into his path. She's the only one he calls his wife. One day, a guy comes to the neighborhood who looks like them, talks like them, but he's not pushing a hustle. He's pushing education. He's a recruiter for Harlem Prep. Oh, you guys. We talked about Harlem Press. Yeah, that's where Janet McDonald went in our Project Girl episode. Mm -hmm. That's, yeah, it's really cool. I was excited to hear about Harlem Prep. The goal of that school was to get alienated kids like him on the path to getting an education. It was a rare success story while it lasted. It instilled kids with pride for their heritage and gave them the skills they needed to go on to higher education. At 23, Daniel joined Harlem Prep. He started writing for the school paper. It was named 40 Acres and a Mule after Lincoln's broken promise to freed slaves. It represented the black angst of the time. His articles earned the attention of his superiors and a scholarship for an internship at Columbia. Around this time, he also had the opportunity to visit Africa as part of an all expenses paid immersion program. Harlem was in the midst of like a wave of black pride. When Daniel was young, um, black was seen as an insult. But now... We were black and we were proud. Black is beautiful. He could either do an internship at Columbia or go to Africa, but he couldn't do both. Guess which one he picked? Africa. You already know. That's right. He went to Africa. Um, it was a lifetime opportunity. Yeah. So I'm sorry, an opportunity, a once in a lifetime opportunity. So he chose Africa. When the U.S. government heard that a group of radical black journalists was traveling, were traveling to Africa, they put pressure on the airline to cancel the students' tickets. A wealthy benefactor stepped in at the last minute. They made the flight. But after the plane touched ground, a member of the CIA secretly followed their group for their entire trip. And then they didn't tell was, them that they were canceling their flight until they arrived yeah, at the council. the airport. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the CIA agent, uh, Daniel, didn't know about until after. Um, much later. The trip, though, was unbelievable. They seemed to travel the length and width of the continent, staying with families in their home, learning the local way of life. He could see Africa unfiltered by Western media. They were treated like celebrities. Locals may have seen Americans before, but they ain't never seen no Americans like these black kids. <laughs> black, black, blackity black. <laughs> and Daniel fell in love with their clothing, with their variety, with their skill. 
When he returned, it was like he was back to his studious years as a kid. He was doing well in school. He was serious about education. He got his GED and continued on to college. He was still hustling to take care of his children and support himself. He was always tired, but he was rubbing elbows with scholars by day and drug dealers by night. Eventually, he went back to the dice game full time. At dice, he was still the best in Harlem. Well, one of the two best. During one dice game, his partner introduces a player with a familiar face. It's Russell. Remember that kid he saw buying trick dice in the store so many years ago? Okay. (laughs) Yeah, so that's Russell. Russell was clearly on another level, just like Daniel. He was killing everyone when it came to skill and strategy. After that day, they partnered up and the world became their ATM. They were getting like $20,000 a week and they've been best friends ever since. Next part, (laughs) whatever part we're on. (laughs) Black Woodstock. So seven pregnancies and home births. His mother never went to the hospital. One day he gets a call that his mother is in the hospital. So, of course, he's nervous. Like, why is she in there? She don't even trust doctors. He fears the worst and he's right. When he arrives, he sees her with tubes everywhere. It's cancer. And she soon dies. She didn't look anything like the woman Daniel remembered growing up. Daniel's brother, Carl, soon dies too. Mm. Cancer. Ahead of the rumble in the jungle. Do you know what the rumble in the jungle is? Yes, ma'am, I do. (laughs) Well, you haven't been living under a rock. (laughs) So in 1974, there was this big boxing event in Zaire between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. Mm -hmm. It was a big deal. Rumble in the jungle. Big deal. So there was going to be a concert featuring black American musical pioneers, James Brown, Bill Withers, Sister Sledge. Mm. Just saying those names make me feel safe. I'm at home. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that concert was going to be ahead of the boxing match. So you could go to the concert which was like a festival basically, and then go see the most anticipated boxing match, you know, in history. It's the blackest thing ever. This, this was this wild. Trip. I would have loved <laughs> yeah. to go. It's, it's okay. <laughs> if it not for the boxing, right, Alexis? For the concert, man. For the no, concert. No, I, mean, I just wanted you to clarify. <laughs> we don't do violence. <laughs> So for this, Daniel went back to the motherland. He wasn't some kid this time. He was nearing 30, a high rolling gambler. And he went early to show off his fly suits and shoes and to take in the culture. Mm. It turns out that Foreman, George Foreman, got an injury before the fight. He slammed his foot in a George Foreman grill and the fight had to be postponed for a month. (laughs) I'm not even going to correct that. Look it up. So Daniel decided to stay till the fight. So he was going to spend a month in Africa. Cool. That's how he felt. It was 11 weeks. 11 weeks. He was going to sit and wait until this was he was fully healed so he could watch this fight. Yes. That's okay. I thought it was just a month. That's a long time. That's a so, long time. But he had the money. He had, he had the, the time. Money. He was going to do mm-hmm. it. But in Lagos, he saw street vendors selling art and he traded his fly clothes for their paintings and statues. Beautiful pieces. He still has to this day. In Liberia, he could use his U.S. currency because I, I don't know if they still do. But yeah, Liberia was founded by freed slaves and they used to take U.S. currency. So he used his money there to buy new clothes. He met a Guinea man, a real African tailor. And oh boy, footnote here. African tailors? Listen, comparing them to everyday tailors is like comparing a Michelin star chef to a fry cook at Wendy's. You ain't seen a tailor till you seen an African tailor. That's footnote in footnote back to paragraph. (laughs) Daniel worked with the tailor choosing fabrics and shapes to create an entirely new wardrobe that was African, European, American street and all fly. He spent all his money because that's how we do (laughs) and had to watch the boxing match back home in New York but he was more than satisfied yeah that boxing match had never been delayed 
uh, Daniel may have never found his true passion. Yeah, because this was the beginning for him. He ultimately, mm-hmm. I mean, he designed, he worked with that African um, tailor. tailor to design yeah. outfits. And he was so excited about what this was. He 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 went back home. He was like, you know what? And, I can't afford it. Let me go back home and get started on my dream. And it's cool because when he got back, folks was like, oh, where can I get that? Exactly. And he liked the attention. You know, <laughs> that's his thing is attention. So everyone wanted what Daniel was wearing. The risk gambling was too high. And if folks didn't like Dan winning, they was going to have to kill him. So it was getting heated. Mm-hmm. And he started thinking long term. Him and Russell, his best friend. We're thinking more spiritually and they were miserable on the streets. So Russell started using cocaine even at this time. And it was a time when even Wall Street was using cocaine. It was like a status symbol. But Russell got swept away by it. A club named Hubba Hubba was a scene for a dice game that made Daniel start the path to quitting cold. One of the many times he quit cold. (laughs) Right. Let's clear that (laughs) up. (laughs) The game, the game was $500 per roll. A move Daniel thought was for singling out the serious gamblers. but Within a crew of boys who look no young, no older than high school kids, um, they started dropping thousands of dollars on the floor. They were ready. So Daniel felt like a, he said the only rat at a picnic. He was like, I'm going to take all these foods for their money. This is great. <laughs> he was going to clean up. <laughs> the gambler's coat at that time was not much different than Vegas. You know, ain't nobody going to kill you for losing. They might shoot their gun in the air because they mad, but they didn't want to ruin their street reputation by killing someone because then they wouldn't be able to make money in the future. So they thought a little more about it at that time. Um, so he was like, you know, I'm going to take their money and go and it's going to be great. Now, he always kept a bodyguard with him for Mystique and because he was really smart. Mm-hmm. But during this game, his bodyguard leans down and tells Daniel, you know what? Don't say another word. And then Daniel realizes what kind of danger he's really in. He dropped $500 on the floor, told them he was going out to take a leak and then went home. <laughs> he like, I'm outie. <laughs> he said, oh, OK, it's getting it's getting hot. OK. And I love this because he dropped 500 on the floor and they probably thinking, well, of course, he's not leaving because exactly. he's got money on the floor. He like, please, I got $50,000 in my pocket. Here's 500 for my life. <laughs> so he went back to his apartment and counted $50,000. Yeah, it was more money than he'd ever earned from one dice game. He bought a brand new Mercedes Benz blue with cash and drove it right off the lot. He said he rode a bike to the Mercedes Benz dealership, bought a Mercedes Benz in cash, put that bike in the truck (laughs) and drove it off the lot. I love that part. (laughs) He later learned that that crew he was gambling with planned to kill him and his bodyguard and leave their bodies in the basement. News soon broke that there were other bodies found in that exact basement. The game was wearing him out. Mm -hmm. One night he was sitting on the stairs with a girl named Sean, the sister-in-law of a drug dealer he knew named Kay. Sean told Dan that Kay and his crew had got locked up in Thailand for drug activity. And this back and forth to Asia was typical in that business. But they gotten caught and only Kay made it back. Another guy died over over there. The other guy um, that didn't die got addicted. So Sean, the girl said one thing that stopped Daniel from being in the streets. Almost instantly. She said, that's what happens to people who make money from other people's sorrows. Mm. And she was right. So listen, Dan is thinking about the future. He's got to find a new hustle, right? He starts selling boosted clothes out of his trunk part time. Kids, if you don't know what boosted means, I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) But listen, he was still playing dice and looking for new hustles because, you know, he always wanted different avenues of income, Mm -hmm. different streams, you know. That's right. Multiple streams of income. 
Let it roll. Uh, something was invented at this time called credit cards. They called them papers. <laughs> and he was like, well, let's try this. So he decided to do a credit card scam, but not, you know, he fly. So he going to do it a different way. He going to go on a tour of Central America and the islands because why not make it a trip? Why not? And grab a couple of women. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Grab a couple um women. Um, Grab two Muslim men. One that can speak uh, Spanish because he likes their discipline. Mm-hmm. They went on their Latin American Caribbean island tour scamming people with credit cards. They were buying and flipping, making crazy money. But toward the end, Daniel's like, mm-mm, something, something weird. Damn, I my luck right. running out. Yep. <laughs> Store clerks became more suspicious. And in Venezuela, they were pulled over by police officers. The police officers were speaking Spanish to... um his friend, Abil, who came. Abil is the Puerto Rican Muslim that uh, came with him. And Abil is like, his voice is getting higher. The officer's voices are getting higher. And there are guns pointed at Daniel and his partner. So Abil gives them some cash and they get back in the car. He later finds out that those officers were going to kill them and take everything in the car. But Abil paid them off. The um, Puerto Rican partner paid the officers and they let them go. Daniel was like, um, one more stop and we going home. They had plans to meet <clears throat> Patty LaBelle, <laughs> the Patty LaBelle in Aruba, because she had, um, you know, wanted to buy some jewelry for them. She had met mm-hmm. them not too long ago at one of their other houses. She was like, oh, you got jewelry? And I'm sure it's legit. Yeah, come on, come on Aruba and I'll buy some from you. Now, you ain't going to say nothing bad about Patty l- readers. So <laughs> just she thought it was legal. OK, <laughs> moving on. So they were going to sell her some jewelry in Aruba, make some money, buy some more stuff and head home. But they got caught and earned over 200 days in an island prison. Three to a cell, no toilet, just a hole. But his experience wasn't too bad, says Daniel. He and the Muslims were vegetarians, so they ate fruit and fresh vegetables for nine months. They were the only black Americans in there, although there were a bunch of white American boys. Who knew all these white boys was in prison in Aruba? (laughs) Dan thought. (laughs) Those boys were pilots and college graduates. Uh, These white boys... These pilots and college graduates were also drug smugglers. Their game seemed so clean that one of Daniel's partners started his own drug smuggling operation when they all got out of prison. But they're in prison now. Two baby mamas come to see Daniel because he don't play with the women. You know, they're going to come to to a Wherever (laughs) he is. To wherever he is. And two out of 16, you know, that ain't even a lot. Um, and uh, while in there, he was also regularly studying religion and studying the hustle. Uh, it was like a master course for him. <laughs> they, when they were released, uh, Dan started one of the first credit card remake scams for two years. He was doing this for two years. Um, after all, he'd taken the master class and he wasn't going to make the same mistakes again. He recruited his friends, Russell and Curtis. Dan never got caught. But Russell and Curtis, well, they were sloppy. Instead of doing what I told them and going to a new place each time they used a different card, Russell and Curtis kept going back to the same banks using their remakes for cash advances. I said to them, why you keep going in the same place? You overplaying the spot. Soon the tellers started recognizing them and alerting the authorities. Since I was careful about it, I was never arrested for running the paper game, but Russell and Curtis was in and out of courtrooms for years. We were so ahead of the government that the judges downtown were confused whenever they brought them in. They were used to dealing with murderers and drug dealers. We were just guys with credit cards. Russell would go to court dressed in a suit and tie, holding a leather briefcase 
case, and the prosecutor would try desperately to explain to the judge how serious his offenses were. But the judge would just squint. What you saying? He made a piece of plastic. The judge be up there getting irritated. You crazy, man? I ain't got time for all this foolishness. What is he doing? <laughs> the prosecutor say, well, I'm, I'm trying to explain it. The people who got caught with remakes was just getting 30 days, a slap on the wrist. That same dynamic played out in court for years before the law came out. But eventually, federal forces started getting involved and the government voted and passed a law against the kind of credit card hustles we was running. When I read about the new legislation, which switched up the technology and increased the sentences, I told Russell and them, that's it, I'm out. What do you mean you out, they said. I made tons of money off this here. Now with this law, they cracking down, so I'm walking away. Didn't I tell y'all save y'all money? I took my credit card machine and threw it in the East River, where it still sleeps with the fishes. Moving on, gems. Now I want to share some gems that I picked up from what Dapper Dan was putting down. Hopefully you too would benefit from them. Because he put down some, okay? I mean, this book felt like an uncle sitting you down telling you, look, I'm about to tell you something about life. Schooling you, okay? Schooling you. So here go some of the gems. Number one, never go back to the same hustle. If you're doing something, you're getting good at it. If you failed at it, whatever. Always be thinking ahead. Number two. Him and June brought a brownstone together, one of the smartest decisions they made. The takeaway, invest your money wisely. Number three, keeping healthy isn't just good for your body. It's also good for business. Do with that what you will. Number four, approach life like this. Find out what the best person is doing and then try to go beyond their level of expertise, beyond what anyone thinks is possible. Daniel learned that there were only three black furriers in the U.S., two in Chicago, hey, hey. one in New York. <laughs> Daniel meets Jacobs, an OG in the fur game, and Jacobs became like a mentor to him. When Dapper Dan's first shop opened, black families and black publications ostracized him. I think my family would have been one of those um, <laughs> because they saw drug dealers going mm -hmm. in there. And so they was like, oh, that ain't a place for good Christians. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, of course, he was on the street. So he made friends in the street and those friends became his clients. So people suspected that he was also selling drugs out of his shop. Um, if this unwarranted suspicion hurt his feelings, he doesn't let on in his book. Drug dealers were his biggest clients, so he catered to them. He'd find out what the big chain stores were selling um, for the flyish jackets, and then he'd sell the same jacket from the same source as the big guys for 30% less. Eventually, the big guys got him blacklisted from their sources. But Dapper Dan was resilient. He was resilient. Mm -hmm. He met a Senegalese man on the street who reminded him of the tailor back in Africa. And the man uh, referred a tailor to him who remained one of his best tailors ever. His name was Big Sake. Hey. <laughs> Listen, in order to keep up with the big name brands, Daniel couldn't sleep. He could take naps here and there, but he had to work nonstop. Now, there were big personalities in the neighborhood with a lot of money. And one day, a worker of one of those personalities, one of those big shots, walks in with his girlfriend, with the worker's girlfriend, and everyone crowds around them. Uh, the girl is carrying a Louis Vuitton bag, and it's the first time Daniel sees the, the bag, the Louis Vuitton bag, up close. Um, he promises the worker that he can use that Louis Vuitton fabric to make him a jacket. Ooh. Promises, promises. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so he went to the... True Louis Vuitton boutique bought one of their bags and used the fabric to make a jacket for the worker. Still Mind turned you, to profit. He bought a um, what's the word? Will you hang your suits in? A garment he bag. He bought a garment bag, <laughs> and he <laughs> turned mm -hmm. that into a fabulous piece. 
Yeah, into a jacket. Yeah, you're right, man. Oh, um, so when the worker's boss saw that the worker was looking flyer to him, he went back to Dapper Dan and ordered himself some custom clothing. He said he can't have my I can't have my employees looking better than me. What you doing, Dan? That's right. Get into Here, it. Take a take a bazillion dollars and make me some jackets, too. So Dan studied the art of leather printing, brought his own ink, made custom silkscreen presses and started designing Louis Vuitton, Gucci, Fendi and MCM patterns right in his shop. Louis Vuitton didn't even make clothes. <laughs> and Gucci didn't make clothes with logos all over right. him. Are you listening to me? Mm-hmm. Because Gucci, Dior, Logomania was a thing. I truly believe Logomania came from Dapper Dan. He was the first to do it. Dan's older brother, James, at this point was a junkie. Once for two weeks, he spent every hour of his, in his apartment shooting up dope, being isolated and addicted like that. He decided to take his own life. He put his head in the oven, turned on the gas and waited. Eventually, he realized, I've been waiting a long time <laughs> to die. Well, it turns out, as is typical with junkies, he didn't pay the gas bill and it had been shut off for a month. Thank goodness. Because listen, James got clean. He turned his life around, went back to school, got a degree, and eventually began helping those who were in the position he was once in. Dapper Dan's dad uh, was in his 80s and the first tie and like suit he ever bought was from Dan's shop and Dapper Dan was really proud of that. He used, um, Dapper Dan used ancient religious symbols to create crests and designs um, for his fake designer clothing. I shouldn't even call it that because he wasn't knocking off. He wasn't knocking off. He was upgrading the brands. He was doing things that the brand should have been doing. Hello. (laughs) And he did it better. He blackenized everything. (laughs) Oh, I like that. Say that again. (laughs) That's directly from the book too. That's what he says. He blackenized Mm -hmm. it. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, he always tells people that Dapper Dan's boutique stayed open for nine years straight, 24-7, but that's not true. He did close for one day, and it was the day his father was buried. After the repast, he sat with his brothers and sisters in his shop, reflected on the love his dad showed them. He loved his kids, his dad did, with his whole heart. How many kids in the neighborhood would ever know that kind of love? He cried. Soon there's a knock on the door. It's late at night, and a man goes, hey, y'all open? <laughs> he goes, yeah, we always open. Yeah. The final part. Mm. Within the first year it opened, Dan's boutique expanded to the next door space. They kept the old space and made it an arcade for his nieces and nephews to stay off the street and have something to do. He started reupholstering cars inside and the outside of soft tops. LL Cool J made him lend him a car for one of his music videos. Celebrities and other black folks from all over started coming to see Dapper Dan. He didn't sleep. But he was running six miles a day, staying healthy and looking good, which was good for business again. He'd even allow up and coming designers to use part of his shop as long as they didn't sell the goods that he was also selling. One of the most successful designers was a man named D. Ferg, who dressed all of Harlem. He reminded Dapper Dan of a younger version of himself. D. Ferg designed the original Bad Boy logo. He died of health complications, but his son calls um, Dapper Dan Unk and the world calls his son ASAP Ferg. Black people like to be matchy. Matchy, matchy. Ooh, I couldn't wait to say <laughs> if that. If you ever watch Martin, matchy, look at Gina and Pam. Matchy. If the skirt was red, the shoes was the same red with a turtleneck that was the same red and the jacket going to be the same red we, and the hairband going to be the same red to match the lipstick. We like okay? to be matchy, really matchy, matchy. matchy. Okay. <laughs> One of the biggest insults you can give a black person is to tell them, oh, you ain't matching. <laughs> That's so true. So, so as rap became big and bigger and stars like Rakim, oh Rakim, 
Mm-hmm. Would ask Dan to make something from his own mind. They didn't even want to put in the input um, for what the final design would be. They would be like, you know, Dan, you know what to do. Just do what you do. So Dan made sure he made matching, coordinating sets <laughs> for all these. Um, yeah, to coordinate. <laughs> <laughs> and then Rakim and Eric B. dropped an album wearing Dapper Dan on the cover. It was iconic. That album cover is still iconic, paid in full. Mm-hmm. But Dan didn't feel like these rappers was doing him any favors. If anything, he was making them look more street, making them look more fly. Before he made Forbes list, Russell Simmons used to come in high off of Angel Dust and Dan's brother would threaten to beat him up and kick him out. (laughs) (laughs) Fat Joe worked. Oh, do you remember Professor Fat Joe from the last episode, kids? Take a listen. (laughs) Fat Joe used to come in. He worked at a sandwich shop nearby. He would just come in and shoot the breeze with Dapper Dan and talk about rap. Teddy Riley, LL Cool J, and the Boogie Down Productions crew still owe that for damn money. <laughs> That's what he, he says. To this day. To this day. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, and Dan started enjoying hanging out with these rappers. It wasn't his generation's music, but they were thinkers and they could talk about spirituality, which was Dan's favorite subject. He loved Biz Marquis and they would talk for hours. Biz Marquis is not dead. I, I know I worded that weird, but you know, they talk for hours. Jam Master Jay was a good friend and the first to take him to a recording studio. Public Enemy was the first who brought Mike Tyson to the shop. Tyson soon became a regular and one day brought his girlfriend, a 19 year old uh, Naomi Campbell, who was on the verge of her own stardom. Mm-hmm. Drugs and violence were tearing through the neighborhood and it was like a war zone. Um, Dan started adding bulletproof material to the lining of gangsters' jackets. At this point, his shop had expanded more than twice, and he even controlled his own warehouse. He was known throughout the black communities, um, I would say all over the world, and he was getting more and more international attention, um, especially as MTV Rap started as a TV show back in the day, and, um, you know, music videos, the artist would be wearing Dapper Dan. So he was getting a huge, huge name for himself, um, which wasn't really his thing. <laughs> you know, he's kind of selling stuff that maybe people don't want him to sell. So, but what you going to do? He good. One day, Mike Tyson got into a street fight with another boxer right outside of the store. People started asking questions. Who was this boutique owner open all night anyway? It was like four o'clock in the morning. And why is Tyson buying clothes in the middle why of the Why Tyson morning? here? Why are these clothes so expensive? We got questions. <laughs> so Louis Vuitton raids Dapper Dan's shop. They took his crafts out of his store and stuffed them in garbage bags. Raids became a regular occurrence. They were relentless. One day, Dan saw the same agents who raided his store dividing clothes amongst themselves at a gas station. He was heated. Heated. One day day when agents arrived, Dan... um, Dan's people started giving the clothes to folks in the neighborhood, like anything to keep them from the ages. Mm-hmm. So they was just going to the street like, y'all want some Gucci first? <laughs> <laughs> and the kids was like, yeah, we want Gucci first. And he was like, here you go, babies. <laughs> and the whole neighborhood looked fly and the agents was angry. Mm-hmm. Anyway, at a trade show, he brought an embroidery machine for $60,000 in cash. He was like, this is going to take my game to the next level. So he was always thinking about the next thing he could do to improve on his skill, on his hustle. He only used that machine once to embroider his father's name on a large piece of fabric. And that's because Fendi was being represented by a Puerto Rican lawyer from the Bronx named Sonia Sotomayor. She would later become the first Supreme Court justice appointed by President Barack Obama. Um, he had a lot of respect for uh, Sotomayor, still does, because when she came into his shop, he was being raided by MCM agents, <laughs> agents from MCM. And she was like, ah, ah, ah. Do y'all got uh, warrants to take this stuff? They didn't. 
And so she goes, well, you got to put it all back. And they did. Mm -hmm. But she still had to raid him. So she took all of uh, Fendi's, you know, quote unquote Fendi stuff out the shop. And as she was leaving, she told a fellow agent. Yeah, she treated him with respect. And, you know, she stopped the MCM agents who were obviously doing something illegal, but he didn't know any better. Dan didn't. Um, And as she's leaving, she's like, man, this this tailor belongs downtown or this these this guy making these clothes. He belongs, you know, with the big Mm -hmm. with the big boutiques Mm -hmm. on Fifth Avenue. (laughs) <laughs> and so um, Dapper Dan goes, I always knew she was a good judge. <laughs> so um, later on, kidnapping started to become common. Dan even did a cameo in a rap video as a cat kidnap victim. But then the reality of the climate started to hit home. He went to pick up his son from school and was met by a teacher who looked frightened. A woman had come to pick up the boy before his father arrived. And when the teacher started asking questions, the woman left without the boy. The situation was suspicious, to say the least. Soon a group of men arrived to take Dapper Dan. Dan was being kidnapped. I just freeze. I don't do nothing. While he keeps shouting at me to get in the back of my own van, I look at the gear shift on the side of the steering wheel. The van is running, but it's in park. My street knowledge is kicking in. I remember what I have to do in a situation like this, what my brothers and I learned through experience. These kidnappers know me as the guy who sells expensive clothes to the drug dealers, but they don't know I'm from the street originally. The last thing they want is resistance. Get in the back, he shouts. The gun is still pointed at me, but I have to fight. I need to lean forward, wrestle the gun away, pull the gear shift into drive quick and step on the gas. Something, anything. You ain't letting them take you. Still in the driver's seat, I make my move. I use the door to push him. The gun goes off. He takes off running. I'll never know if he shot me on purpose or if the gun just went off by accident. But I felt a fire on my back and the force of the impact knocked me out of my seat and onto the ground. At first, no one from the shop came out to see what had happened. They were down in the mezzanine, unaware of the activity out front. The only one who eventually ran outside was Beverly, one of my shop girls. She'd heard the gunshot and came over to where I was slumped on the side of the van. She helped me to my feet, but at that point, I was not in my rational mind. I was in shock. A sudden wave of paranoia crashed over me as she picked me up. I started saying to myself, maybe she was in on it. I don't know if she's down. Because I had lost feeling in my arm, Beverly put me back inside the van on the passenger side and sat behind the wheel to drive me to the hospital. But having just fought off a kidnapping, I wasn't about to let anyone drive me anywhere. My arm dropped, I said, climbing back into the driver's seat, but I ain't dropped. I shifted down into the drive and put the pedal to the metal. I made a sharp U-turn in the middle of the street and went the wrong way down a one-way. At last, a couple minutes later, I pulled into the hospital, and as soon as I walked through the doors, I collapsed. That bullet is still lodged at the base of Dan's neck. After the failed kidnapping, he didn't like being with people anymore. The shop felt cursed to him. His head wasn't in the right space. Um, He represented himself in the case with Fendi. You guys, kids, never never represent yourself. There's people that do that for you. They're called lawyers. Definitely. And Fendi collected a quarter of a million dollars of goods and equipment from him. He had played the whole situation wrong, completely wrong. They even took his new embroidery machine, a machine he'd used nearly all his capital to purchase. The boutique started to crumble. Nine years of hard work down the drain with nothing, almost nothing to show for it. He laid in bed for three months. He only left to take his wife to work and to take his kids to school. They were living off of June's check, his wife, and they almost lost their brownstone. 
He lost weight. He was feeling defeated for the first time in his life. His wife encouraged him to start again. She took him to 125th Street to sell shirts to tourists. He didn't sell one shirt, but that that um, experience whet his appetite again for hustling. He started with dice again. <laughs> he like, go on and do you know, it. Go on and do it. He knew a lot of things, but he didn't know anything better than gambling. Mm-hmm. He quickly got all the money he needed to start again. All the monies. Uh, big timers didn't use the subway. It was shameful to go down <laughs> into that hole and come back up out of it. But Dan had to overcome his pride and take the train to the garment district. He take he hadn't taken the train in 20 years. He got so lost, he wound up in New Jersey. But, you know, eventually he got back on track. <laughs> he built a boutique in the ground floor of their brownstone. He bought a new screen printer and uh, required no men to operate at this time. It was a, a new advanced model. He started making guest clothes, Timberland jackets, whatever was hot in the neighborhood. Um, he started making house calls, delivering clothes to clients. Tommy Hilfiger was the first major designer uh, that catered to young black people on purpose. And they tried to get Dapper Dan on their team as a designer, but he refused. He, he always wanted his freedom. One brand who refused to work with him told MTV to blur out Dapper Dan clothing and music videos. They either wanted him to be their slave, it seemed, or they wanted him out. He used this also as motivation. He found his old friend Russell and helped him to get clean. For the next year, I helped Russell get clean. Mostly, I wanted him to know there was a place for him in this world, that he would not be alone as long as I was around. I paid him $350 a week to stay off drugs, to stay connected. While he started attending NA meetings, my house became a refuge for him. He stayed with us, getting healthy in mind, body, and spirit. He started reading his way out of his pain. Russell's been sober for over 20 years now, and Curtis and my brother James, who both wound up going back to school to become drug counselors, have been sober for almost as long, using their firsthand experiences to help others. When you're getting high, you get locked into a way of being. You get comfortable and you don't think there's anything else out there beyond that. But then when you get clean, you realize there are higher forms of pleasure, spending time with friends, exercising, learning a new idea. And these pleasures are on a different level of intoxication than anything a person can experience on drugs. You realize that self-control is a ladder, not just away from addiction, but towards a higher spiritual plane. I've seen it so many times and obviously I experienced it myself when I was recovering from heroin. Guys get born again, become Muslim or craft their own spiritual truths just like me. Whatever the specifics, the underlying principle is the same. Our actions have consequences in life and the actions that matter most are the ones that abide by some higher law because you won't find truth in the streets. You won't find it in the courts or in mainstream American life either. You'll only find it in the realm of the spirit. I can't tell you how many street guys I've seen fill up with emotion during a stretch in jail as they remember too late that those rare moments of peace and connection we experience in life are the ones that matter more than the pursuit of material game. After Russell got healthy, we started making trips together, the dynamic duo, hustling just like we did back in the day. Wu-Tang, Aaliyah, Floyd Mayweather, all of them were back at Dan's door. Soon his sister's co-worker, uh, were t- they were talking. Did his sister work for a brand name? Yeah, that's what it sounded like. She worked for Louis Vuitton, <laughs> right? Yeah, so I don't remember, but this sister's co-worker <laughs> was like, hey, y'all, this crazy. Like real loud, blowing up the spot. Y'all, this crazy. Folks is saying that Louis Vuitton still in designs from Dapper Dan. And his sister, his sister was like, huh? Because she had been living like on a 
kibbutz or something in the island somewhere. So she really she didn't want know nothing, nothing that was going mm-hmm. on in popular culture. She was like, that for Dan, that's my brother. That's your brother. <laughs> <laughs> Can't you just see that happening in the workplace? Yes, like, can. oh Lord, please. Hush, hush, hush. <laughs> Um, so this is how the book ends Dapper Dan always made time to spend with the kids in the neighborhood and in his family and he used to take them running and explain to them you know we used to swim in the Harlem River (laughs) you didn't swim in that river (laughs) it's river nasty and they was right but uh, they used to throw popsicles in it to see how strong the current was popsicle sticks and he says this I'm sorry popsicle sticks he says this you could say that my life has been similar to that popsicle stick floating in the Harlem River Seen as trash by some, but offering something valuable to those paying attention. Knocked around by the same tides that carried ships from Africa with my ancestors, riding out ahead so others can figure out the best way to follow. Eventually drifting out into the big sea, going where the current takes it, but never going under. And that's it. Want to take a break? Yeah. All right, let's do it. What did you think of Made in Harlem, a memoir by Dapper Dan? I loved it. I thought it was a great book. Um, I actually listened to the audio recording because I didn't get the book when I expected to. So I started reading it a little late. And Mm -hmm. I, you know, I always say I'm a slow reader. So I needed to quickly get through the book. And I liked hearing Omari Hartrick read it. That that was a great reading. He would add like a little <laughs> chuckle in some parts and, and it's not in the book. So it would kind of, oh, to that. me, highlight the moment or an expression that he would make. So, and I loved hearing the stories about the past, um, the uh, about the migration, how people in the area, like if you were from North Carolina and you lived in North Carolina, um, if you were from North Carolina, you lived amongst the community of people that were from North Carolina and then learning about how the high rises affect really affected the community. Yeah. Uh, I like how for generations, yeah, for generations, how he um, he was so smart, uh, his desire to learn more. Uh, I loved all of that. I liked him and I was rooting for him. I, yeah. I was I was disappointed when he went back a couple of times or when he um when he was working Repeatedly. with his friends. But that's what happens <laughs> yeah. in life sometimes when you're trying to yeah. get over something. So I'm so happy for the success that he does have. And he is truly a designer. He he did not learn to become a tailor. He is working with his client to design something. I like how the story yeah. is um how the story is told. It was it's just I really, I really enjoyed it. How about you? Yes, I love this book. Um, this is the first book we've ever read that made me feel like I was sitting down with a member of my family and they oh. was like schooling <laughs> me. I, I really enjoyed the way he spoke, mm-hmm. um, his matter of factness. There is some language, but for the subject matter, I thought he handled everything with elegance. He is telling you the truth yep. in a way that feels um, down to earth. It's not. He's, I, I can't explain it. It just feels real. It does. I guess. Very if, real. He speaks in a way that's really real. And I learned some things from this mm-hmm. book. I mean, what if he would have taken five years to become an expert 
Taylor. Yeah, before he that got started. That would have wasted time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, know what your skills are and exploit yourself. Exactly. <laughs> you know, exploit your talents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, maybe exploit isn't the right word, but you know what I'm saying. It would do what you do naturally and make it be the best at it. Yeah. Um, so I love that. And yeah, I would definitely recommend this book. I, this is one I'd like to read again. I know we talked about taking some time off to do whatever we want. <laughs> and I think there are a couple books I want to reread. Uh, this is one of them. And also Anna Karenina. So, That's crazy. Yeah. Anna yep. Karenina. I love this book. So I'm putting this up there with Anna Karenina. Wow. Okay. Leo Tolstoy, Dapper Dan, two of my favorite authors. <laughs> exactly. It was just that <laughs> good of a book. How about that? It, it really yeah. was good. I felt close to him just reading the book. I can appreciate what you're saying when you say it was like your uncles was schooling you because it, it just felt mm-hmm. like that you learned so much. You, It just feels very real. So I, I And technically, it's very economical. You know, memoirs can get runny because people fall in love with their own stories. I did feel like every anecdote in this book contributes to the theme of the book as a whole, mm-hmm. which is, you know, hustle until you're successful. Yeah. <laughs> um. So... Yeah, I loved it. Yep. I really love this book. Loved it. Would definitely. I hate to leave mm-hmm. it. You know, when you read a book and you're like, man, it's over. I can't hang out with you anymore. Exactly. <laughs> That's how I felt like, man, aunt, <laughs> you just gone. <laughs> and you know what? He became that to the children in the community. And I, I love yeah. that. So it was natural, I think, for us to kind of feel that connection with him while reading this book because he became yeah. that to the children in the community, trying to aid them and being better than seeing beyond what they their immediate situation Mm -hmm. yeah it's good stuff would definitely recommend this book well thank you there Kari for uh, making this book selection for us I loved it Mm -hmm. what are we reading next week so next week I guess we're on a theme here we're reading self-made inspired by the life of Madam C.J. Walker one important note this book used to go by the original title On Her Own Ground The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker so if you're looking for it perhaps look under both titles great that's exactly right looking forward to that book well thank you for listening to Lit Society we're looking forward to meeting with you next week Thursday we're gonna be here yeah we here. Society is brought to you by Alexis Anaria and Kari Herrera. Support the cause by leaving a five-star review for our show on Apple Podcasts, along with a comment about why you absolutely love us. Because we love you too. We love you guys. If you've enjoyed what you just heard, tell a friend about Lit Society. Visit LitSocietyPod.com for show notes this month's book list and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. And until next time, read read something! something.